Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. Now, summer is coming and we're all getting back into our beautiful gardens, but actually, are they as sustainable as perhaps they should be? Maybe you don't have as much time as usual this year, or you're struggling to keep on top of things. If so, this week's guest may be of particular interest to you, as we're talking with Marion Boswell about sustainable gardens and landscapes, and what we can all do to try and make our own gardens a little bit better for nature and more sustainable as well, and the importance of them for healing and you know, sensory purposes too. I really enjoyed this episode, as not only did we get to sit in Marion's wonderful garden, but because it talked a lot about the role of the soul and how important it is to factor that into our spaces too as we design them. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Make sustainability a priority throughout the design process with a suite of tools built specifically for landscape architecture and design. Vectorworks gives you the freedom to follow your imagination wherever it may lead. With remarkably flexible software that integrates BIM for landscape and GIS workflows, sketch, model, and document in a single tool with the world's most design-centric BIM solution. Discover Vectorworks Landmark and design without limits. Visit vectorworks.net to learn more. Hi, Marion. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us in your beautiful garden. Absolutely amazing spot. It's certainly, um, we were just saying, one of the highlights um, of the podcast and um, being able to come to places like this. And your garden is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. So um, thank you very much for having us. And I thought we could start by just having um, a bit of an introduction into your kind of background and how you've come into doing what you're doing now because you didn't start necessarily in this world and I think it's really interesting to understand how people have come to where they are and what kind of things have led them to do what they're doing now because you're doing some really interesting and important stuff so it'd be nice to know how you kind of progressed through and got to where we are now. Well thank you, thank you for having me and it's lovely to have you here. I think um, it's I tend to agree with you that it's so valuable to build on everything you learn and to take it to the next stage of life. And I definitely have come through a variety of of different careers. So um, I read French and Italian uh, uh, to begin with, and then I went to Marks and Spencer as a graduate. And I did their graduate trainee program back in the day when... Marks and Spencer, British Grass, and the royal family were the sort of iconic uh, brands of the 1980s. I then um, went to work as a management consultant for um, several years, and that was um, a baptism of fire, really. Very interesting, very high energy, um, working with lots of um, strategic companies at a corporate level. Some of them doing lots of good, some of them doing less good, and... After that, I um, well, I slightly bombed out of the corporate world. I my second child died, and I oh, felt gosh. then that I shouldn't um, completely subcontract my whole life. Mm-hmm. So I had colleagues who had day nannies, night nannies, and weekend nannies, and I just thought actually I'd like to live my life and to um, do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't mean to become a garden designer. I took on this garden and sort of had to learn how to look after it. Mm-hmm. So I did some rapid learning. And over 10 years, I did um, horticulture, garden design, landscape design, and then landscape architecture, the masters, and then went back to teach landscape architecture at Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the process of that, I started being asked to design other people's gardens. And I set up my studio. And I figured that um, because I was kind of, well, not middle-aged, but I was older, that I didn't want to go and work for a big company. I really wanted to um, set up my own company with my own rules because I found working in the corporate world quite um, 
exhausting, if you like, um, mm. on many, many levels. And I also thought that there's a better way, has to be a better way to run a business. So I brought people in, um, really good landscape architects. It's almost like a reverse apprenticeship, if you like. Mm -hmm. So I brought people who are more experienced than me to work with me. Mm -hmm. um, and it really grew from there. And I've done that for 20 years now. Oh, so wow. we have um, some wonderful clients and I have a really, really fantastic team. Mm -hmm. So I'm very lucky. No, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's a really interesting intro into, you know, how you've come to where you are. Um, but now you're doing so much in the sort of garden design world and you're really, you know, a figurehead sort of leading so many aspects of it, especially around sustainability and things. So I want to do we would you like to talk a little bit about maybe your book first and a bit about why, what sort of inspired you to create the book yeah. and, and what you and the book talks a lot about what you've done here and how this garden's come to be. Now, we've been lucky enough to have a wander around. Um, but I think if you could explain some of the things you've designed here and then people can get the book and they can see it for themselves. <laughs> well, they don't have to get the book, um, yeah. Yes, but yeah. So, well, thank you. Um, and thank you. And you haven't taken your shoes off and walked around the meditation spiral yet, but we could do that afterwards. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd the, love to give that a go. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, so the book came out of really the way that the, my studio has, has developed. Um, and over the years, really working in historic gardens is um, it's very good training garden, uh, training ground for really honouring the past and thinking very, very long term. So because I worked a lot in, in historic gardens, um, understanding the history, the topography, the geology, um, the water, as well as the environment, um, is a, quite a gentle way of, of designing. And also there's not much room for ego because mm. there's usually been a lot better designers than me in the past <laughs> in these places. You know, if you're following the footsteps of Capability Brown, you don't have too many delusions of grandeur. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that was quite a good um, start and then, and then people would say, um, would be talking about sustainability. And I thought, well, actually, that's kind of what I am trying to do. Mm. And, and I wanted to get out as quickly as possible the, um, the thoughts to as many people as possible, which is why I wrote the book, because it's very accessible. Um, whereas, you know, coming to a designer isn't for everybody, mm -hmm. but actually picking up a book or, or photocopying a book. I always encourage people just to take pictures of the key pages if they can't afford it, because it's actually, it's the message. Mm -hmm. It's sharing the message, which is what it's all about. Um, and also, as, as you know, I was, I met Eric Anderson a few mm -hmm. years ago and we started talking about the Sustainable Landscape Foundation, mm -hmm. which we co-founded. Um, and really to, to um, get the message out that it was, I wrote it in lockdown. So it was sort of, we were slightly held up in our aspirations for getting the word out via the foundation. So it's okay, how can we really um, get the message out and, and help as many people to think sustainably? Mm -hmm. And it's a strange thing about our industry, as you know, from the work you're doing, <clears throat> that although a garden looks green, it doesn't necessarily mean it's doing lots of good. It could actually be doing quite a bit of harm. Yeah. So to really think about all the decisions that go into creating a space, whether it's a garden or, or a bigger landscape, um, once you understand the framework and understand what your decisions are and what they're impacting, it's, it's fairly simple to, to do good, mm -hmm. but there's lots of 
sort of uh, routes which you could go down which are, are more harmful than others. Mm -hmm. So you and I were talking about water mm -hmm. earlier on and how you use water, how you recycle water. And I always like to think of us as guardians of water. So what happens when water comes through our house, um, does it leave in better shape than it arrived or have we filled it with chemicals and hormones and fertilizers and you know, other poisons essentially? Have we used more than we might have done? Is there a way of using less and recycling it? And, and how can we keep it on the land for as long as possible? That then leads into soil, you know, mm -hmm. how healthy is our soil? Because the healthier our soil is, the more it will take up water, the better sponge it is. Uh, have we got um, lots of microbes in the soil? Are we feeding our microbes, the herd, the unseen herd <laughs> underground? Um, and yeah, all, all of these things are, are interconnected, but you can actually pick them apart and, and study each one. Mm -hmm. um, and holistically, we often have that kind of gut feel of what's, what's good and what's not good, but actually marrying that with the logical decision-making, I think is very helpful on, on a day-to-day -day basis. No, I completely agree. I think um, what you mentioned about taking egos out of it is very interesting because it can be quite a dominated profession by that in, in many instances. And I think that's a really interesting way to approach design where, you know, obviously I, I design projects too and things, but when you do come to look at places and what's made those places and what does make those places unique, it's the heritage, it's the local soil types, it's the local landscape um, and um, local architecture and things like that. So being able to embed that and use that as a guiding principle for whatever it is you do can be quite a humbling process, I think, and is a really important process to help reaffirm those things in, in whatever you're doing, which is, really, um, which is really, really important to make sure places are then contributing to the future as well, of maintaining those characteristics and things. And although things can be changed and adapt, adapted, um, there's a lot that can really be looked at, but being able to do that in a way where you don't necessarily impose your ego, I think can be incredibly challenging. Um, but one of the most valuable things about sort of our profession and what I like with a lot of the people we talk to is many of them do have a cause above themselves. Mm. And I think that's one thing I've, you know, really felt coming from you since we met in that, you know, it's not just about coming in and designing a, a garden for people to use it for now, even though obviously that's a major part of it. It's thinking, okay, well, how does that contribute to the future yeah. in, in, in whatever way and yeah. across the many sort of spectrums and interconnectivities that happen in the process of a design and its use over time. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That the, um, the whole, so it's the whole kind of why are we here and what are we doing and, and um, what's, what's the point? And uh, whilst it's lovely to be in a beautiful space, uh, what, what else is that space for? What's it, what's it doing? Um, and what is the purpose of, of us and, and of design and of, and of, been, of being designers? So I like to think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. as a, at the base, you know, we need to feel safe, we need food and so on. And as we get up our hierarchy of needs, then we, then we start looking for love. And mm -hmm. finally, we look for like a higher purpose in life. And I mean, we're very fortunate um, can't you obviously uh, both of us in in that we have a lot mm -hmm. um 
to then kind of what, what can we do next? Um, as far as taking egos out of it, um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You can, you can kind of check yourself off sometimes if you are, I can check myself sometimes if I'm doing a design and then I'm thinking, no, I want it to be like this. And I have to be thinking, well, why mm. <laughs> is it? Because I think it looks much better than that other person thinks it is. Or what do I think actually is that it will make the people that I'm designing for happier. Mm -hmm. And in that second case, then I'm really happy to sort of, you know, argue my, my case because I'm very clear when I'm designing is putting the person that, or the people it can be many people that we're designing for in a space and changing how they feel. Um, and I know that you've worked in sort of big schemes where you're, you're really um, making a big difference. Um, I tend to work in rural themes when, when I am making a difference, but to fewer people, but mm -hmm. to a lot of land. So if we're cleaning up water and adding hedgerows and bringing in life, wildlife, then I think that makes a, a huge, a huge difference to a scheme. And, and I'm not here for very long. Um, none of us are here for very long. Indeed. So, so it doesn't really matter in the end um, who contributes what, does it? No, exactly. I think as as long as we all tread lightly and you know try and leave the world in a better place for the yeah. people that come after us, and I think the hierarchy of needs demonstrates that really well. It's come up a few times actually on the podcast. Tim Hopkin from the Land App actually brought it was the first oh, person to bring he? it up, saying nice. that was a major driver in understanding. Yeah. You know, if we don't get those fundamentals right, everything else falls apart, and it's mm. making sure that we've got a solid base to build on and help others and secure all these things. And if you don't have that, then everything is much harder. Um, so being able to understand that and contribute to those things wherever possible um, really is very important. And I think also we're very fortunate because it's a design profession, you can see everyone's you can see everyone's ideas more than just hear them a lot of the time as well. Mm. So you get to sort of see how people think and how what's the way they approach problems in a very different way to perhaps you do in other professions and i found that i can have quite a dominating personality i'm quite loud i'm quite big so i, I can be quite imposing but i found that now once you kind of observe that and you can see that happening, as you say, sometimes you have to step back and go, oh, hang on a minute. Um, I've tried to move my role into more of a facilitation role now to kind of being, okay, how do I use um, sort of my skill sets to enable other people to kind of have their say mm. and discuss things? And you mentioned about how you built your team as well in your practice. And I think that chime on me quite a lot because I've tried to do a very similar thing. I've tried to bring in people that have very different skills mm. to me to go, okay, what can I do, but what can't I do? Mm. Okay, the people, what I can't do is where I need other people to come in and feel that. And that might be have a more sensitive touch or understanding angle as much as it may be more experience or understanding of like specific issues. Mm. So I've tried to build a team sort of that way to look at a lot of these, a lot of these problems. Yeah, and yeah. I think how different people work is really interested at. So I don't mm. know if you know um, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, it's about in introverts. Mm -hmm. And um, I really like different ways of bringing people out. So like in, a, in group work, we often do a brainstorming when we'll, we'll, each person will write and we'll, we'll dump our own ideas and then share them because that, yeah. yes, because sometimes brainstorming when people are writing on the, on the board or whatever, somebody might not want to throw something out. So that's just a way of capturing 
you know, an easy way of capturing Absolutely. people who aren't necessarily into kind of group work and group think. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think you, you need to have your own ideas challenged a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I do quite often still think that my way is the right way. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I, I do try and do something along those lines where we, mm -hmm. I try and say, okay, because I think it's an important part of learning and training as well. For, for me anyway, the way I learn is very much doing something, being told why it's wrong or being having it sort of annotated or whatever saying that like if you look at it if you look at it from that perspective then it changes your approach to it and i think being i'm a more visual person so i think seeing and understanding things that way is really valuable mm. so with our team we very much have an approach of trying to say okay let's all come up with ideas everybody go away and draw something just a quick five minute sketch what do you think should go where how could anything something be laid out how do we resolve whatever problem it may be and then we can kind of have a look. We go through all of those and I try and always do my one last because then mm. you know, everybody else has had a chance to speak and sort of be heard. So you do kind of end up in this interesting sort of leadership position that I perhaps, even though I'm running a company, I perhaps wouldn't have thought myself to necessarily be yeah. in. But I think that translates a lot into the actual client side job because more and more of what we're doing be it garden design landscape design or, or, or whatever a lot of it now is very much going and talking to teams of people that are outside your profession the public mm -hmm. clients that don't necessarily understand what we're doing or why and being able to then have a very similar discussion with them saying look let's look at it from this perspective or let's try and understand it a different way or look at it a different way and it creates a very different sort of working relationship yeah. as well which is much more sort of collaborative than perhaps things have been in the past i find i mean i started off as a management consultant in the 1980s and the difference in um start and a lot of what we did then was change management so you know i'm tr i'm trained in how to do that sort of thing but the difference of intention if, if mm. you're coming at it from a, a point of of real truth and really um each collaborator wanting to do the best. I was really heartened recently. I was at a Beaver conference yeah. last last week, and they had a team from um, Southwest Water. I think it was one of the water companies, and they have actually hired Beaver experts to be in their in their mm. company. Which was first of all that was fantastic, but also how these people were coming to the audience, the the group, to ask for input was really heartening and how they were taking um, information on board and some people were upset with what's happening and so on and that's fair enough mm. but there was much more of that kind of dialogue and ability to listen and to change and to to do better I guess mm -hmm. which I think is um, yeah is a, is a new I guess we're all learning really that it's only us there are no grown-ups in the room apart from us yeah. and we've kind of you know it's now or never that we have this unique position in history that we've arrived at a time of real crisis, a biodiversity crisis, climate crisis, water crisis, and um, what are we going to do? Exactly. And it, it makes it an incredibly exciting time, but even in the short time I've sort of been doing this, I've seen such a massive shift in the way people are talking about these problems. And it is much more collaborative. And I think we're going into a time where it's much more let's get as many heads around the table to look at this from as many perspectives mm -hmm. as possible to really understand a problem and come up with a range of solutions than perhaps we ever have before. Mm. So I think the whole dynamic is shifting, but also we're going through a, one of the other big challenges is the lack of experts because we're in, most of the professions are in decline that actually deal with a lot of these problems. So there has to be a greater onus of collaboration, mm. um, 
between professions, but also within professions. And, you know, one of the things we've really tried to do is work with lots of other practices mm. to sort of try and support one another and, you know, bring in experts on specific things where they're needed, where we may not have those expertise because none of us can do everything mm. and we need to make sure that we're doing things in the best way that we possibly can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I recently, I, I don't, I'm not sure you know, but I've done a couple, I've done four and I'm about to do another, I do a workshop day for designers mm. and people who are working sustainably or want to work sustainably, they come for the day and I basically tell them anything they want to know. So I open my books, I show them how I do pricing, I show them how I set up our systems, how we do the drawings, how we do the research, mm -hmm. anything they want to know basically um, on the basis that we need more good designers and it's that stuff that holds us up. Yeah. You know, you know, to be able to get out and do good design, you need to be secure in your office, you need to make enough money, you need to have all of the things like insurance and um, best practice and all those sorts of things which you learn on the pathway to chartership and so on. Mm -hmm. You need all that. So if we can get more people to have all that, and you can't learn over all of it in college. So um, I really feel that the, yeah, the more better people we have, the quicker we're going to solve lots of problems. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's, again, why it's important to understand where people have come from, because a lot of people that are in these sort of severe spheres and doing a lot of this work haven't come from traditional roots. That's one of the things I've really found mm. quite surprising and interesting. I mean, I didn't necessarily, although I always worked in sort of conservation and the environment in some respect, but I never went purely sort of landscape. Um, and I think that's very interesting because as with anything, you need a diverse set of opinions and skill sets. Mm. So you need people to come into any profession with diverse backgrounds. Mm. And I think there's a real, we've really missed a trick over the last few decades of sort of pigeonholing and following very sort of linear paths into professions. And actually we should be going, mm. no, we want people coming in that are bringing new ideas, um, new strategies yeah. and different perspectives as, as well. Obviously there's core skill sets that everybody needs, but there also needs to be a range of sort of understanding to sort of break the traditions and innovate to be able to tackle some of these problems more efficiently and more effectively. Mm. Um, but in order to do that, you might not have as much experience as if you just went down the linear route which comes back to what you're saying about the designer days being even more important mm. and having a really key role in helping people sort of get established, understand the principles and core things that they need to do. I think it's, I think the way we're doing pretty much everything is changing at the moment and it's quite exciting really. Yeah, hugely. And the, the Landscape Institute have been very good. Um, I was on the um, committee for opening up the pathway to becoming a, an accredited professional site. So you don't mm -hmm. just have to come, you don't have to be just a landscape um, architect. You can come up through other ways. Uh, and I think that's really important too, that we get more people working with um, designing how we're all going to live. Yeah. Because that's really it, isn't it? Urban designers or uh, rural designers, it's designing how we should live in the future. Yeah. And and hopefully then getting into policy. I mean, through the Sustainable Landscape Foundation, we've talked to policymakers, and I know you're talking to those kinds of people as well. And they need to come from all sorts of different backgrounds to in order to create the best um, routes and uh, there's, again at this beavers conference talking to natural england and hearing them preparing papers for ministers in order to help things come through and saying to them well what's the process you know how can you help the process speed up is it like planning permission do they have eight weeks and they, they need to get back to you and and the answer is no <laughs> so maybe we even need to start thinking about how that works 
Mm. I think as well, we, we had a very interesting, we did another podcast earlier today on um, sort of food farming policy and sort of public perception. Yeah. And one of the things that sort of really, that came out of that was, uh, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm. Um, and there's never going to be perfect policy. And that's something that has to be factored into policy. There has to be an ability to amend and update and respond to changing circumstances, needs mm. and everything else. And everything we do is a trade-off. That's the other thing. We're always trading something off against something else. Mm. And it's understanding where those trade-offs are and why some might be more important than others. But then also being able to <clears throat> understand how we can revisit things in order to correct potential mistakes if they've been made by, mm. by trading off the wrong thing at the wrong time. So that's all part of the discussion as well, which I think is very often missed. Mm. We, I think things like policy are quite often deemed as final when actually they are a work in progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very easy to forget that. Um, but there's a lot There's a lot going on with the government at the moment. We've just been appointed to quite a large um, project to sort of look at how we address sort of catchments and, and, and things, which is quite interesting, which will be advising ministers. So we're quite excited to find out a bit more about that soon. But because um, we don't know much about it yet, but we've been, we've been yeah, appointed yeah, to it. Yeah, fantastic. So, um, well done. and that, that's being able to understand the impact we can have across catchments at different levels from urban to sort of rural. And we need more of that. But at the same time, we also need more action because the, mm. uh, the flip side is we spend an awful lot of time and energy on research opposed to application mm. so there has to be again be sort of a fine line of going okay right we have a good enough understanding for the time being that's not to say we don't stop researching it we carry on researching it but at this point let's crack on and actually yeah. implement a load of this stuff mm. um, and then if it's wrong it's wrong but at least we've done something and learned from that process and what's the worst that can happen yeah i think that's that's the other thing isn't it i mean sometimes getting it wrong could have huge consequences and sometimes it's not going to have that higher consequence. And yeah, you heard a bit of that frustration at this beaver conference again with some people saying, well, what if some people were just going to let some beavers out? Um, you know, what then what? Mm -hmm. um, which wasn't deemed a good idea. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, but yes, yeah, so what, what are we going to do? Mm. And how can we work with people to to explain as well. I think it's really tricky. And I mean, the media is actually at fault quite a lot for wanting, mm. a, wanting a story and wanting an angle and stirring up trouble an awful lot of the time. Obviously, a lot of media is trying to educate and also just tell a story, which is a good, I say good, it's all relative, but um, is a fair story. Mm. Um, but sometimes when the government, any government is trying to do stuff, it's it's all muddied, isn't it? And we end up in conflict. Yeah, I think I think it can be very polarising. Again, this this came up earlier today because the trouble is you always hear the extremes of the argument, whereas mm. the reality is it's in, nearly always in the middle. Mm. Like there's, of course, extreme points of view. Um, but actually, broadly speaking, most people would probably be happy with some intermediary position. Mm. It's just that's very rarely portrayed. And you end up in a situation where you have people's backs up or something along those lines where they become, they close down, they shut down, they don't necessarily listen in the same way. And then they're not willing to have that yeah. discussion. And that's incredibly damaging. So some of these things can be their own worst enemy. You know, you can have an, an incredible environmental project, but all, all you have to do is promote it the wrong way. Mm. Um, you know, farming is a fantastic example of this. Farmers often demonised, and actually they're the people that 
have the most to offer yeah. and most to give and the most important people to talk to. And if they put their backs up and don't want to talk about it, then it's everybody's loss, mm. um, which is a real shame. Um, and I think that's not necessarily always the case, but I think it's quite often portrayed that way through the media. Everybody understands we've got to produce food, but quite often that that narrative is is mm. distorted. I would say we've is... got to produce food, and we've got to pay the farmers. Yeah, and for the food, as opposed to you know, well, not not as opposed to other things, as in the public goods. I do I do understand that, but some of the strange things we've paid for them for in the in the past, I think perhaps have done as much damage. We're very exciting. We're very excited to be working with some very good farmers on some new projects, where they are really interested in um, doing um, some silver, silver culture, so mm -hmm. getting some rows of trees and so on in the middle of perfectly normal agricultural crops. So um, working with a dairy farmer who is interested in um, improving his soil and working with the floodplains, mm -hmm. so um, grazing cattle on the floodplain. That's, I, I find that hugely exciting and letting hedgerows grow and working I mean, there's, that's where countryside stewardship needs mm -hmm. to catch up a little bit. Some of, you can be paid for some of those sorts of things, but also um, you can have you can actually have money taken, or historically you could have money taken away if you didn't cut your hedgerows. So all these sorts of things, I think we are all catching up. And, and the more trust, really, and, and I think an ability to talk to one another yeah. is how we're going to um, actually come to a point of, of balance. Mm. I think so, yeah, and seeing what people have done and learning from their mistakes. Mm. I think, you know, some of these things are crazy, like with the clipping of the hedges, you know, really we should be letting them grow a lot bigger yeah. and a lot more wild than perhaps they are right now. Um, in some places and other places, you know, perhaps they should be more maintained, I don't know, depending on the history of the area and things. But it's it's those sort of things, I think, which are quite often missed or just not really valued in, in discussions, I think. Mm. Um, do you want to talk a bit about some of the projects that you're working on at the moment then? And because you, we were saying before when we were having a coffee and a conversation um, before the podcast about how you've really shifted your sort of client base yeah, to sort yeah. of tie in with, with what you, you want to do and also what you think yes. is important. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. So I, um, so we did a lot of historic garden work and um, estates and um, had a bit of a... Um, uh, a rethink last year and decided that I wanted I, I was finding that I was getting lots of work in really really happy and lucky and very very fortunate to be offered lots of work and I was kind of saying yes to too much and then I was employing more people in order to service more work and then I was getting more work in in order to keep more people employed and um, I found it was difficult to do that and to be absolutely sure that every piece of work was for the sort of client that I wanted to work for on on the sort of project that I wanted to work uh, on um, and so I took a very bold step and reduced my team and reduced my client base and said that we're really only going to work on projects that make us feel really good and it's a that's a gut feel it's a head and heart decision um, and also, whilst you know we we do um, have good a good fee structure and so on, that money isn't the only currency. That it's mm. not just about making more money and having more people and and growing growing bigger. And it has been wonderful. It's been absolutely fantastic. And I think my team would agree that we're 
all really happy mm -hmm. that we're working for some incredible people who want to do some wonderful things. And the projects are so exciting. I mean, and also I know like you, I'm much more interested in learning mm -hmm. than, than anything else. So I want to know how to do better in all different areas. And as an landscape architect, you never stop learning. Mm. <laughs> we'll, we'll die half trained, <laughs> um, a bit like my spaniel. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, yeah, just to be able to um, enter all these new areas and to be able to, yeah, really focus on what makes us all feel good has, mm. has been a great thing to do. Yeah, and how and how have you found that sort of transition? Have you found people sort of understanding of that when you've sort of declined work? Have you made that, have you tried to make that sort of clear to clients saying, look, this is the kind of work we really want to yeah. try and do. Is that something you're interested yeah. in? And they're very open of sort of saying, oh, no, not really. We just want yeah. a fancy garden. Is that, does that come up a lot? Do you find many people are actually very sympathetic to it or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those lovely things about just being open and honest, isn't mm. it? And, and knowing your boundaries and, mm. and no hard feelings. Um, yeah. that this is this is what we want to do and that's what you want to do and is there a match and if there is great and if there isn't well you know lovely mm. um, we might recommend somebody else or they might know other people um, and I think it's much better to do that at the outset than to sort of trundle along feeling a bit miffed and unhappy and maybe it all falls apart later mm. on maybe it's a bit like a prenup <laughs> something <laughs> which I've never done but, um but yes, I think, um, yes, it's, it's that knowing yourself as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I have um, I've spoken to some garden designers and talked about sustainability and so on, and they say, well, they didn't really know what sort of garden design they wanted to do. But I think once you have decided, and it's so liberating, mm -hmm. because you, you just know it's a yes or no answer, isn't it? It's yes, I want to do that. Yes, please, I really want to do that. Or it's kind of not really. And if it doesn't make me feel brilliant, then, uh, you know, I could go and potter around in my own garden instead or, you know, go and work in a community garden. We'd also do pro bono work. Mm -hmm. So we help design um, hospital gardens or physic gardens, that, sort of, that sort of stuff. So we're open to doing that um that also makes us feel good yeah no that's really important yeah we do we do a lot of trying to help other people with various sort of community projects and things and i was saying telling you about some of the water things we're doing yeah. where we're prioritizing either people that need it or organizations that need it like schools and charities and community groups and things like that that's amazing what you're doing i really so, yeah oh, thank you very much so um but, but those values i think are are coming more and more to the fore and people are understanding you know the social value in what we do as well as just the environmental which is another shift that's sort of happening now before it was all environmental whereas now it's much more about social responsibility too and how did they all entwine yeah. together um and it's really fantastic to see um do you want to talk a bit more about the the book well, as funny well enough, because, it comes back to that well, because, that's what I was yeah, say, yeah. because i start off by saying about talking about kindness and I think if you can be kind to yourself. So what I did at the end of last year was very kind to myself. It was not unkind to my previous team members either because I found them really good. I found I helped. I mean, they found it for themselves, but I helped them to get really good positions in, in really good um, other uh, other places. They're probably much happier now than they were with <laughs> me. But, um, but the, um, I think if you can be kind to yourself... First and foremost, that shines out. Mm -hmm. And it's only really when you can be kind to yourself that then you can be kind to your partner or your child or your dog or the person you meet on the street. And once you can, once that flows, then that's a great um, decision-making 
tool again, isn't it? I mean, it's the classic, do no harm or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule, as one of my clients would say. The um, and, and then that, that makes every decision. Like, am I going to dump this, these chemicals in this water? Well, no, because it wouldn't be kind to myself, mm. <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Do you know water's fine? I'm sure you do, because <laughs> you're a water specialist. But yeah. I didn't know that till a few years ago. That, mm. that, that's it. Whatever's on the planet is it. And it just goes round and round. And, yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah. And there's very... And there's, a lessening supply beneath our feet which we all drink from pretty much you know and you, you start realizing oh gosh and that's slowly becoming polluted unfortunately so mm. you know we've really got to start thinking that actually the damage that's been done whilst in the past we've been able to chuck something in a ditch or whatever and it's not really affecting us that's catch that, that societal mm. um what's the word um i can't think of the word but the societal kind of attitude of doing that is now coming back to haunt us oh, yeah. and that impact of going oh yeah it's not really our problem yeah. whereas now it is our problem because yeah. it's reached that sort of critical point of actually yeah. it's all starting to come together and create multiple crises and issues pretty much everywhere you look be biodiversity food security yeah. actual security um climate obviously you know it's there is an awful lot of sort of challenges coming forward which is why we need you know solutions like this where people can understand not just how to design something that's beautiful and helps deliver for the environment but also delivers for themselves too yeah. so it's it's kind of that sort of matrices of different values that need to be intrinsically linked yeah to make something truly sustainable yeah. which is what i think is really interesting about the work you're doing so because what you can't see for the people watching um, and what you definitely can't see if you're just listening is behind the cameras, we have your, what's it called? It's called a meditation spiral. Yes. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but this episode is sponsored by Water Offsets. If you are working on projects where you might need environmental credits, then they are the people to go to. They specialize in not only biodiversity net gain credits, but also water neutrality and nutrient neutrality too. So if you have an estate, a farm, or some other kind of landowner, um, or interested in that kind of project, then they could really help you find you know, new ways of funding those projects and diversifying your land and farms take you through the whole process. And if you're a developer who's run into problems, then actually they can help provide those credits that you need to unlock your land and get your development done. So check out Water Offsets if you need help with any of those things. Many thanks. Well, it's very, very simple. It's basically a moan spiral and the width of the paths are the width of the mower. And I actually show in the book how to make it. So it's basically, you just put a, a piece of stick on top of your mower, the width of the mower, and then you push your mower round in a circle from the center outwards, and the length of, this, of the stick then dictates the each path that you leave. Mm. So it's super simple to make. But what it does is that it, um, increases your biodiversity by 50% because you've got 50% more lawn that you're never cutting. It decreases your fuel by 50% because you're not cutting that bit of, it gives you that bit of lawn, sorry to finish my sentence. Um, it gives you back that amount of time that you would have mown those other bits of lawn. But the amount of biodiversity is amazing. And because it's edge, it's and it's the liminal spaces where things exciting things happen, both spiritually and on the ground plane. So because it's edge, you've got the flat, lawn and then you've got all of the um, grasses and and flowers 
So much happens. And we had Andy Phillips, the wonderful ecologist here. He just came back again yesterday, but he was here a few months ago and he was so excited by all the stuff. He was finding all different types of spiders and all different types of beetles and lots of the bees, mm -hmm. ground nesting bees, but also the forage bees because they come from just nearby and they, they have their circuits. And that, this is one of the very good ones. Plus it's now it's been there for a few years and we're on heavy clay the shorter grass has become a bit mossy, mm -hmm. which means in the morning it's the most, uh, well, any time of day, but it's the most soft feeling underfoot to have bare feet. And that contact with the ground is so good for you because we are conduits from above to below as, as man or as woman, you know, standing, standing upright. And you just feel it walking very mindfully. Mm -hmm. And it's, all, it's also done on the chakra system. So each of the spirals, you can think of a different part of your chakra system if you're interested in that um it's very very cleansing and uh the center of the lawn is actually on an energy point um so i'm very interested in geomancy and where energy flows on the land and if you do get to the middle maybe we'll get you to do it later you just feel this kind of uplift at the center and it's yeah it's very 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 special mm. uh, and it's something which we put in for clients, if they're interested, or perhaps a, a proper labyrinth shape, because bringing that kind of um, mindfulness or meditation is so good for lots of aspects. But for me, for my creativity as much as anything, mm -hmm. to clear all that brain clutter out and to stop thinking. And that's when inspiration just comes, mm. isn't it? When you're just being quiet for a little bit. Yeah, and that's my biggest problem, switching the brain off is, I think, yeah. one of my biggest challenges. Um, but I've never, spirituality is not something I've ever really delved much into. I'm a much more traditional in that sense, traditional man, uh, not very spiritual. But I'm very interested in it. I think the value it has is, is huge. And I've met so many people and seen so many projects where it's really been transformational for people's lives that, even though it's not my thing, I understand the value of it for others. So it's being able to look at things like this and test them out yourself and see what, see what it does for you. Yeah. Um, and then and no preconceptions. You yeah, just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, just experience Have it. Have you tried cold water swimming? That's the other. You said you didn't like the cold, so maybe. <laughs> I, it's not so much I don't like the cold. I just can't handle the cold very well anymore, unfortunately. Oh. I got very ill a few years ago, and since then I've not managed the cold. I got right. when I was early in my low 20s, and since then I've really right. struggled with quite a few things yeah. um but um i have been in the cold so when I, I used to go to russia every year and um, we used to do the sauna and then swim in the snow wow. afterwards um my some of my family used to cut holes in the lakes and dive into the lakes through the ice um but i didn't do that that's where i drew the line um that's brave but yeah, yeah or we used to run through the streets naked basically, basically <laughs> in the cold uh, i think when the coldest we did was about minus 27 i think once when we were out so and the saunas are about over 100 degrees the saunas are incredibly hot you have Good to wear hats Lord. otherwise you pass out wow. um, so it's very extreme in like the the russian ones and i've done it in norway yeah. as well they have um in oslo they've got saunas that float on the fjord right and then you come out of the sauna and you can jump into the fjord which is also quite bracing. Um, yes, nice, nice so, British understatement to go with yeah, the Russian <laughs> and the exactly. Norwegian way of. Yeah, yeah it's quite but, bracing. Um, but, it, but the experience for the body is unbelievable because mm. normally you would do that and then you'd have a tea or something and you know you would sit just with a towel on because even after dunking or something, you're still so hot. Um, and it's kind of like a high. You kind mm. of can sit there just totally content with the world yeah. and your skin feels so much better. You feel so much more alert. Um, but it really is, you, don't, you feel the cold for a moment, mm. but 
because of that transition between the hot and the cold, it's such an amazing mm. kind of experience that I was never interested in sauna or anything before really, or cold water swimming or anything like that. But after having done it a couple of times, again, you kind of twig and you think there's something in this. Yeah. Actually, it's yeah, really, yeah. really quite valuable. I've tried doing hot yoga as well a couple of times, but that was a bit too hot for me. Um, and I'm obviously not very good at yoga, so <laughs> it's a bit more of a challenge. But um, I think, again, those things and understanding that and embedding them, we've actually done quite a few projects lately where we've recommended those kind of things, sort of natural mm -hmm. swimming with saunas yeah. um, or other things with, with uh, just saunas in the garden and, you know, a dunk yes. bucket or something yes, for people yes, to sort yeah, of yeah. cool down because yeah. it's such an important experience to have. And there's some really interesting spas as well. I went to a really fantastic spa in Cornwall maybe last maybe last year or the year before. And um, they have a thera therapy garden and that's a really great experience. And you go through sauna. Well, you start off in an outdoor sort of shower with lots of scrubs to sort of exfoliate and bring your skin to life. Then you try sort of saunas and things, very cold water. Then you have another experience in a hot tub, but it's very coarse. It's very like rough wood. Oh, so it's quite a, interesting. It's very tactile, even though you're in hot water. Mm. And then... I can't remember what you do after that, but the next... Oh, then there's like um, sensory paths between oh, things as well. So yeah, you're kind yeah. of exploring with your feet a bit. Yeah. And then right at the end, there was sort of a hot... Um, some hot water that you just put your feet in, basically around a fire and you have a tea and things or maybe a blanket. Oh. And again, just that... It's very, very simple. Yes. But it really is incredibly calming. Yeah. Um, and the mind, impact It's is, that mind-body, isn't it? Yeah, it so really is. So how can you yeah. bring your mind into your body? And quite a few of the meditation things I do are to bring your mind into your mm. body, to stop it just jumping around up here and to ground you. That's uh, it. Yeah. And I, one of the things here is if it's frosty, you can walk barefoot and then you get a very similar feeling mm. without <laughs> without the hole in the ice and so on. But you get that amazing tingle all day, just like mm. you do if you've done the sauna. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a wonderful feeling. So, and I think it's com you're seeing where to combine that with other things. For instance, after a workout, I used to think a sauna would be the worst thing you could ever do. You'd never want to go mm. into a hot sauna for a hot workout, but actually it's fantastic. It's really good, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, again, and then maybe, you know, a cold shower or going mm. in a swimming pool or something that's a bit cool. Um, really makes you you recover yeah much better and you kind of very ready for sleep and all of it or weirdly it makes you very ready for sleep if you want to sleep yeah. but if it's in the morning it really makes you makes awake you ready. Yeah. so it's kind yeah. of weird how it can kind of really support you in where yeah. you are in the day as well it's quite an interesting yeah very interesting experience well, i think we're understanding so much more about some people call them biohacks, don't they? But just mm. getting your hands in, in the soil releases all the endorphins and the serotonin and that kind of stuff, which I think is a is a great thing to, to know and to actually yeah to actually use. We were talking before about the bakashi bin and mm. whether or not you'd actually drink. <laughs> I, I don't know where you got that from, but whoever it was, yeah. I hats off to them. I haven't done it, <laughs> but yes, but using fermented stuff for your gut mm. and and also eating from your garden. So one thing I'm very interested in is. Um, collecting stuff from the garden and, and eating it like the nettles and like the cleaver and like the mint and the and the lemon balm and all those kinds of things and and listening to what's appearing in the garden and and deciding if it's for you mm -hmm. so um like ground elders really good for gout the okay. romans brought it over for gout so it's good for cleaning the 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 blood um i had to slightly um eat my own hat or my own words um 
last year when underneath the bird feeder I had a very nice uh, crop of cannabis <laughs> just appeared out of nowhere. Hmm. My team were like, well, Marion, you always say whatever comes is for you. <laughs> Got to decide if it's for you. Yeah. But it was, it's not, it wasn't the smoking type. It was the, um, the uh, hemp type. Hmm. But even so, CBD oil is really good for you. So yeah, I then is, bought yeah. some CBD oil. I thought, right, well, if the garden's telling me to look at CBD oil, I bought some CBD oil and it well, was great. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting as well that how, some of these alternative medicines are being used. So a very good friend of mine, unfortunately, is incredibly ill um, and he only got given a few years to live. Um, but this was maybe 10 years ago. They gave him, I think, two years to live and that was 10 years ago and he's still going. Um, and the NHS said to him, okay, oh, they gave him um, some painkillers and things, you know, like over-the-counter ones. Um, because of his condition, it stopped his heart. So he couldn't, he had terrible pain all he had a problem with his nerves his nervous oh, system wow. so he was in constant pain um and none of these you know typical medications worked and one of the doctors said to him he said look mate it's from the nhs he said we can't condone this he said but go to amsterdam smoke a lot tell us if you feel better and if you do source it in the uk was basically their advice wow. because they said that it's there's something in it the thc um and now he has a proper thc oil he's got like a prescription for that right. but it absolutely transformed his health it went wow, from you know really being like really suffering very badly to right. complete almost not recovering obviously yeah. but really seriously like getting things back in order right and there's a lot of very interesting stuff happening with that and the other interesting one is um energy isn't it and vibrational energy and mm. things like that that's coming around a lot mm. in terms of healing and understanding frequencies and people's bodies and things like that and I'm involved in a lot of different things and some of the things I don't always talk about very much but I know a lot of people that are working on very experimental technologies and new things like mm. that that don't exist currently um in our normal world yeah. um, and a lot of them are using sort of frequencies and vibrational energy to yeah. do amazing things from healing the body to yeah. completely new technologies and, yeah, and, and yeah. things but it's old technology as well yeah. so when i'm talking about standing in the middle of the of the lawn and feeling mm. that energy spot i mean that is vibrational energy and i'm very into tantric yoga mm -hmm. which is when you're using your energy and your help and you're helping the energy to to work in the body similarly to um how, how you might do it in um, Tai Chi or Qigong. It's mm -hmm. all about how you, yeah, how you work with the energy. Like flows and Yeah, flows like mm -hmm. and things. And, and technologically, I think, obviously, perhaps the people that you're talking about are, are using it to see how you can, how you can work with those as almost like a biohack, I suppose, is how yeah, we Yeah, it was influencing yeah. matter, basically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, we did it with radio waves. How long do you think it's going to be until we can move without getting in a car? <laughs> now that one is that one is one I haven't seen but I know I know I think there's one thing I can talk about I don't know but one of them can regenerate parts of your body within your wow. body yeah. so if you've got damage to certain cells it can mm. activate wow. um, replication of those cells right. within the body so it's like non-invasive regeneration yeah basically wow which is quite cool yeah. Um, I can't explain Great. them on that. Yeah, yeah no, I <laughs> um, believe you, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's some very interesting stuff coming yeah. out and coming forward in technology-wise that uses these things. And I mean, it's funny, you hear about it a lot on like the conspiracy kind yes. of sites. And yeah, I yeah. thought it was a conspiracy as well. I think, oh, it's rubbish. But but now I've sort of coming across it so much, I'm going, actually, there's got to be something here because it's kind of uncanny. Yeah. And I don't know, have you seen things like visible sound? Have you ever seen... No, what do you mean by that? So um, 
if you have like a plate, a metal plate with yeah. sand or salt or something oh, yes, on, yes, and you yes, change yes. the frequency, it completely yeah, yeah. changes totally. the form as geometric shapes. Yeah, 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 I have, yeah. Um, and it changes the flow of water yeah. as well, all of yeah, these yeah. things. Well, Crazy. Mizuru um, Emoto, who wrote about water and how water carries our energy and how mm. you can, the change, you can see the change in, in snowflakes or mm -hmm. in crystals from how you speak to it and what it does. So that's, I mean, that's virtually, I don't know where you would draw the line between spirituality and energy. So I think that's very interesting that you said you went into it because I, I'd say that they were kind of one and well, the same. But, I, I think mm. as our understanding changes, you can see the intricacies between these things. And you, that's when, for me at least, I'm a bit more of a hard facts kind of guy just because i like to be able to say things like almost not categorically but as close yeah. as i can to go look this is the situation this is what we can do um but i do think as time goes on i'm sort of going oh yeah you you, you can see the sort of flaws in like the current mm. narrative so to speak or or what we understand currently i mean the craziest ones are around things that like um have you ever heard of graham hancock a lot of people are going to be so. calling us conspiracy. We're going real conspiracy now. Um, but there's a, there's a gentleman called Graham Hancock who's done a lot of work into ancient civilizations. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, they go into things like, well, who built the pyramids? How were they oh, built? Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And then there's other engineers that have gone, well, it can't have been a ramp because at whatever pitch would have been required, right. the ramp would have to be kilometers sure. long, which they definitely didn't do. Um, so they're looking at things like, can you move things with vibration? Did they move things vibrationally, oh, like wow. that kind of stuff? Um, and what impact does that have? You know, some of the ancient structures in, uh, I think it's the Aztecs or the Mayans built, you can stand at the end of huge amphitheaters and talk normally and mm. hear very clearly throughout the whole place. Mm. And it's like, how on earth did they design any of that or understand mm. any of that? And I've talked to some other very interesting people who are like, really like, I'll tell you some of them are later, but, but leading the way in some new technologies and things and um, some of the people we've had on the podcast before. And a lot of them are talking very much about sort of um, like the hallucinogenic things to understand a deeper understanding of like the natural world well merlin sheldrake he says in his book mm -hmm. entangled life that he took magic mushrooms and in a controlled in a controlled way to see um if it could help him in his phd mm -hmm. and and it did and I, I think there's a big difference between sort of recreational drugs and using things for um to to a purpose like that but mm -hmm. his mother so i had a whole sheldrake weekend when i was supposed to be writing this book actually <laughs> i do tend to go around down rabbit holes but his his father is rupert sheldrake who's a great spiritualist his brother is an amazing musician who mm. one of his songs includes the tardigrade that we were talking mm. about before which is a tiny thing in the in the soil um but his mother was jill is jill purse who um studied vibrational plates and, and movement mm. of, of of sand and so on and i think all these things are are coexist and and if um merlin hadn't had little enough ego to open his mind and, and think about all these things. Would he have made the incredible discoveries that he's made? Mm. Um, and recently, I don't like science fiction because I've always felt really uncomfortable with it, but I've started reading, I mean, I maybe would or wouldn't count it as science fiction, but The Ministry for the Future is a book which apparently is Barack Obama's favourite book. It had its flaws, but I read it because it's looking at a crazy future. Mm. And, and I think that at the moment, 
we need answers which we might only find from a few you know go let's go to the limits of craziness mm. then claw it back and say okay right what can we actually do because you know yeah that's it we I can't think... join the crazies not yet <laughs> not yet exactly not, not till yet, we retire exactly. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> but i think it, it is interesting because it adds another level of depth to yeah. kind of what you're doing and i think there is certain things when you go down the spirituality route where you kind of get to points this is again my observation of other people because it's not something i've delved into in great detail but they, they kind of gain a uh, sort of a depth of understanding or a depth of purpose as to what they're doing. And I know another really classic example is ayahuasca. Have you heard of ayahuasca? Yeah. So that's the drug that people take in uh, the jungle. Mm. Um, and that has a huge amount of sort of backstory about how civilization developed through that drug, mm. um, which is a hallucinogenic. It's two, I think it's the root and a part of another plant. But, the, but even the myth of that is really interesting how people took... I think it's the root. They ate the root first right. and it caused them to hallucinate. And in their hallucinations, they saw another plant. So they found that plant, mm. added the two together and it created the, like the ayahuasca that they take now, which provides access to sort of spirit guides and all of this kind of thing. And yeah. a lot of people who have done that have come back questioning sort of, not reality, but the state of things and how we need to look at things differently to gain a better understanding of the world itself mm. and not just in terms of, um, again, we're going a bit beyond what we were going to talk about in terms of garden design and things here, but going beyond how we traditionally have done things and seeing that actually maybe there are things we don't know or we've forgotten mm. as, a, as a species and actually can we glean something from this, but yeah. that perhaps there's another path to sort of enlightenment and all of these kind of things but it provides I'm jumping on my words a bit here but it provides also kind of like a moral baseline as well for you to be able to build upon what you're doing because mm. you can kind of see these things and understand sort of the interconnectivity of everything and I think that baseline is really important and the intention I think if you I mean, I do, I know people who have come real croppers with taking ayahuasca and magic mushrooms and all the rest of it. So I think that it needs to be in a very nurturing, very mm. controlled, very caring environment um, where you're really held by a really good shaman or a really mm. good person who knows what they're doing. So I wouldn't advocate people leaping on planes and going, well, <laughs> planes aren't that sustainable anyway, but, you know, going, mm. going, and, do, going and doing but what I think is really exciting, and you can get actually you can get there a lot with meditation. Mm -hmm. So they talk about a lot of these drugs being trampoline spirituality because it brings you up for a little bit, and then you get you go back down. So you're, you're going to go back and look for oh, for it again yeah. for it again. Mm. Whereas if you can get there with meditation, then you can stay there. So I think that's um, just something to mix into the pot if you have listeners and viewers <laughs> it's all very important we don't condone taking any of these things we should probably caveat <laughs> caveat that with this but it's just an interesting discussion it's an interesting um, discussion, innocent, yeah. interesting discussion. but um, i do think it is how you know how are we going to make the break foods and they always say people that don't know history are, are consigned to repeat it mm -hmm. uh but what if we didn't repeat it what if we actually did something completely new and, and, and exciting um, yeah it would just be so wonderful, and even if it's not us, even if it's not, well, you're a bit younger than me, but even if it's the next generation or the, or the one after us, if we've been good at ancestors and opened that way and not closed things down and, and not been so egotistical to say you can't do this and you can't think like that, if we actually opened the, the way to people thinking mm -hmm. in different ways, then it would have been worth being alive. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, just to add 
just to go back to the drug point for a moment, sorry, <laughs> sorry to bring it back. But I think one of the other observable things that's coming out of typical med actual medicine, yeah. um, the medical field is, is very much how um, drugs tend to be an accelerant of sort of existing conditions. Mm. So if you're already in a fragile position, mm. then they obviously make that much, much Exaggerate worse. Exaggerate it. Exaggerate yeah. it, yeah. And I think going back to the garden design and, and sort of spirituality side, the understanding of mental health and everything has come along so far yeah. that actually a lot of that now is sort of going, okay, right, well, how do we help people using mm -hmm. these solutions in terms of designing better places and spaces and these sort of activities that get you in tune with your own body and your own spirituality and your own sort of understanding of self are incredibly valuable and really, really important. And you see a lot of places now like Norway again, Norway now um, they can send you to health farms mm. um, as like a prescription. So we have social prescribing here now uh, for going on walks and things, but they can actually send you away to like a tech-free farm to stay for however long wow. to sort of detox from sort of modern society. Um, and there's lots of other places now where like Singapore, for instance, I've been to see some new care homes they built in Singapore and they're designed around having a view of the landscape or a view across Wonderful. the city yeah. for, for residents and having everything they need in the building and activities for them like gardening as part of it yeah. on the rooftops of the buildings you know Brilliant. huge huge buildings yeah. um and you have it here too where you know some care providers you know well a conversation I had with some care providers was sort of saying to them you know you need to look at nature as a care provider as well it's not just your staff providing care it's also nature to, to help people recover and yeah. respond better and live a better life but then also you don't just have a responsibility to your residents you have a responsibility to your staff so you also in a, in a high stress environment like care or medicine or whatever else um you also want to make sure your staff are well cared for. So putting in provision for places for them to de-stress and yeah. them to, you know, be able to take time away or creating time in the schedule schedule for them to do yoga with residents or by themselves or, or whatever is really, really important to as part of a holistic strategy to address mm. all health concerns, not just caring for someone that's let's say broken their leg or broken their hip it has to go beyond and caring beyond for the carers that. i think that's so vital it was lovely in lockdown to see how many people actually realized how important our caring profession is but even as, as designers and landscape architects you it's crazy when you find that um people some people have burnout and are working all hours and i so i slightly thought sort of be careful what you wish for because mm. as um landscape architects and garden designers, we really wanted people to turn to us and, and for us to be able to help design spaces. Um, but then after COVID, particularly when everybody realized how important outside was, there was this massive rush of work and people were burning out. And I was thinking, well, this is madness. You know, we entered this profession in order to help people live better. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work if we're all falling by the wayside because we're working too hard. <laughs> so I think, how can you care for the carers? Um, one of the places I... Um, I'm very fond of and I'm working with more is um, called 42 Acres down in Somerset and it's run by a wonderful visionary started by Seth and his sister uh, Laura Tabaksnik and they um, they have a check-in every morning and that's for the for the workers and they really look after each other and they work with the land and they forage but they really listen to the land and they listen to each other 
and I just think that as a way of working, it's a it's a beautiful thing to do, and it would be great if we could do that as our, in our practices as well. Mm, absolutely, I know the practice I used to work for. They um, mandated like an hour's lunch break, and they encouraged everybody to leave the office. Yeah. And I used to hate it because I used to I always wanted to try and get stuff eat, done quickly, get <laughs> stuff done, and leave early. Yeah. But um, but you know now I can see how valuable that is. I mean, I, I used to go for walks every day, and now since I've had my daughter, I have to just cram everything in as much yeah. as I can into my work day and I quite often don't leave the house at all now some weeks pretty much um, which is also really not healthy at all so it is, it is about finding a balance and being able to make sure you make time for all of these things in your day because it's as important yeah. as everything else yeah, yeah. Um, and you know you can see it in your health and things too you know especially fitness and things if you're not even going for a walk yeah. um, which is something I've, I've certainly noticed um, <laughs> but it is yeah. It's all emerging, I think, isn't it? Is a, a sort of a shift in culture, perhaps, uh, and the way we sort of value things, which I think is, you know, long. It's really long exciting. Overdue. It yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, it's a great time to be alive. Mm, it is. Um, so we've skirted around the book quite a lot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think I felt like we've talked about it. Well, um, no, I think we have. I was just what. What, do, what the, else? Well, the principles of it, I think we've yeah. covered really well. I yeah. was just thinking maybe um, it might be worth giving a bit of an overview about what else you sort of talk about in the book of how you sort of take people through the process of sort of designing their own gardens and things they can implement oh, at home sure. and things too. Yes. So I think, yes, the, the things you should try at home, not mm. the drug taking, but maybe yeah. <laughs> do not try this at home. So um, I'm very interested in how you can create a space that is kind to you and that is mm. your place of refuge as well as a place for other people to come into. And so that's that's why I really firmly believe in being kind to yourself first. Because if you look at a, at a space and think, what would make me happy? Lots of people don't really know what that is. You know, they know that they're supposed to get their grades and their jobs and their money and so on. But actually, what makes them most happy? And often it's something really simple, like a walk in the park or yeah. time with their child or that sort of stuff. So you actually don't need a lot for that. You don't need the latest limestone or the best trampoline or all those kinds of things. So if once you know what is that makes you happy, everything else is kind of on top. And so then how the space works with the elements, how are you going to capture the energy? So the energy comes from the sun. Um, so whether um, where the sun is in the different types of parts of the day, the other energy comes from, from ourselves. So whether um, we're going to do the work or whether we want to get somebody else in to help us do the work. Also, the work can be the end in itself. So you're talking about fitness, but rather than getting a leaf blower, if we can do raking, raking is really good for us. It gives us a sense of achievement as well as a little bit of fitness. Um, and that actually has been proven to raise... Um, uh, our feel-good hormones makes us nicer people actually <laughs> makes us go out and feel good about what we're doing with other people um, so from the energy point of view then in terms of working with the wind so filtering wind and I'm, I'm telling you this for everybody else really because I know you'll know all of this is a landscape architect but whether you can filter it rather than blocking it so that you don't create eddies and swirls and wind tunnels, um, whether uh, it's going to help move insects, because you actually don't want completely stagnant air, you want things to move, particularly in greenhouses, so that if you can put your greenhouse in a space that is going to get some air current moving through it, which will help with whitefly and all those kinds of things. Um, it's also good just to go and ruffle your your plants every now and then. You can be the wind in, <laughs> in, the, in the greenhouse. Um, Water. We've we've touched on water, but on a small garden, in a small garden, 
looking after your soil is the number one for looking after your water, but then you could also have a little pot, a rain garden. You can collect water from the roof. You can clean it. You can have wonderful children's play things with water with no plastic whatsoever. You can build a little dry pond or get an old um, secondhand trough from somewhere to be a water, water garden. And, and that brings in the birds and the bees and um, the bats and all mm -hmm. those sorts of creatures. Leaving crevices, so the walls, the uprights, growing stuff wherever you can in the verticals, growing food in, in the verticals as well. So I like to use a lot of currants and um, berries that you can pick and eat. And if you don't get round to it and the birds eat it, then that's fine too. Mm. I think if you set yourself up with this is a vegetable garden and the birds must keep off, then that's very different to saying, right, here's a garden with loads of food in it for me if I get round to it and the birds, if I don't get there in time. I think that's a very, it's mm. more fun um, in, in, a, in a way. Um, and once you're eating your ground elder and so on, then you're not thinking of things as weeds. You're thinking of things as different varieties of... of uh, um, of thickness, what's the word I'm trying to say, of how much there is mm. of, of, of bounty. Um, so then when it comes to growing vegetables themselves, perennial vegetables are fantastic because you don't have to worry about changing the soil and mucking up the soil. Um, and then eating leaves. I mean, at the moment, we've got hawthorn, we've got the lime trees coming through. Um, there's all sorts of different leaves which you can pick and add to your salad. Sedum leaves are really crunchy, lovely beech in your leaves, salads. Beech young leaves, beech leaves, yeah. taste just like apple skin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All those things you can add to your um, cow parsley and all, all those sorts of things you can add to your... Yeah, there's yeah. quite a lot you can do with it too, like um, the uh, bracts on lime. You can make tea with them, yes. quite a very sweet tea, yes. tealia tea, um, which is really quite a very, very popular in Eastern Europe. Um, yeah, and I think I think we've just lost a lot of that knowledge as well. Of, yeah. You know, there's a silver birch over there. You can make wine from it. Yes. Very, very popular in Belarus to drink and Russia to drink um, birch water, um, which is just a slightly sweeter yes. water. Yes. And it's not that dissimilar from... Um, uh, from what you would make maple syrup from. It's yes. not as high sugar content as yeah. maple trees, but it's not far off. So um, some you could essentially you make tap it, yeah. birch syrup as well, you know, all these yeah. kind of things. So there's a lot. And you can make bread from some of them, I think, birch. You can make bread from the seeds and beech as well. You have to, you have to blanch it. But... Yeah, and plantains like a chia seed, mm. and that grows mm. as a weed. So all these things, I mean, it doesn't have to, you don't have to go out to out to forage. You can kind of forage amongst what you're, what you're growing. Yeah. So I, I think that's really good fun because it makes a completely different way of thinking when you're weeding. You're kind of mm -hmm. collecting, aren't you? You're seeing what's what's there for you. That's it. Um, and that brings us back to medicines, actually, because some of these things are quite powerful medicines, so you shouldn't go nibbling on everything in case it's more of a medicine and, and or stroke poison mm. than it is a food, but lots of it is good food. We've got primroses over there. They're lovely in tea. Violets at the moment oh, yeah. are good in tea. Yeah, so all, all, all these things. So they, yeah, so there's that. Um, and then also food from what you buy. So one of the things in the book, I show how you can just get a celery. When you finish your celery at the base, you just stick the base in some water or in some soil and it grows again, hmm. which even, it doesn't even have to be organic. Then um, that's a lovely way of sort of tripling your supermarket by splitting hmm. out basil. You can make lots of different basils you can, or you can cut basil and put that in water and it'll grow again. Mint is quite difficult to kill actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, mint will grow anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and we had mint from, from the garden th this morning. So yeah, that's a lovely thing to, to grow and eat. That's so it. I think all these kinds of things, yeah. So you can do it in a really small garden as well as a really big garden. Yeah, and I think as well, it leads to um, another thing that we've not really touched on, 
when it comes to food, but it's around like food culture as well. Mm -hmm. So we, um, at home, we, we tend to buy stuff that's, because we're cheap, we tend to buy stuff that's like going out of date or, or, yeah. or going off. And we buy that, one, because it's cheap, but also because then we kind of have to do something with it. Yeah. So it kind of leads us to having to come up with something totally different or use mm -hmm. things we otherwise wouldn't normally eat or, or cook. Um, and we only really have like, fresh vegetables and fresh fruit and things like that so we or, or, or most of the meat we buy tends to be reduced so we've been eating lots of venison lately but um we we try and build our sort of diet a, a bit around that mm. we're not like going out foraging in the woods you know this is coming from supermarkets and shops but it's a good way to help you understand what else you can do with things mm. and then if you're doing that from the garden as well there's just so many things as you've mentioned already there's so many plants you can actually eat it's, it's a bit crazy really crazy, I, yeah. I met some people the other day that have been foraging and they've been collecting pine needles mm. and some pine trees the early pine needles you can eat yeah and they have a very very strong like citrusy sort of taste very yeah. interesting yeah yeah um, but quite nice very refreshing and the tips of the, the new cones as well yeah. if, yeah. if i don't know we were going to talk about this i've got some pine cone jam at home Ooh. and you actually eat the pine cones the whole pine cone you eat it wow. um, i'll bring some next time i see you um and um that's really quite interesting to mm. to eat but that's also very but some of these things also have really good health benefits and because we eat such a limited diet yeah. now yeah. you don't get the range of nutrients and, and benefits you yeah. have and essentially because it's um the very young pine cones they're quite sappy yeah. as well yeah. so you kind of get like these resins and things within the jam so it's very often used as a jam but also to treat like sore throats and all of this kind of thing mm. so it's like multifunctional yeah. foods yeah yeah um and in russia interestingly actually they have um they have a very different sort of tradition around honey so they have lots of, I don't know how true this is, but I remember we go into a honey fair and they have different honeys allocated to different parts of the body. Oh. So depending, they'll have a big chart of like a person and they'll say, if you've got this problem with your lungs, yeah. you need this honey. If you've got this problem depending with your Depending on what leg, the bees have been feeding on. on what the bees well, have that been makes perfect on, yeah. sense, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, it makes yeah. absolute sense, but I've never seen it anywhere else. So um, yeah. it, it's quite surprising how they have made use of like these things and sort of tailored yeah. them and actually that the benefits you can get from like just a diverse diet yes yeah. and also if a if a creature has nibbled on your um plant so if like a slug's eaten a bit or so on <clears throat> not to spurn it because actually then it will have um some of the phytochemicals which the plant would have put out in order to repel the insect is really good for us too yeah. so i think that helps particularly if you've got children that don't like <laughs> holes in plants to explain it's actually better for them that's it yeah. well it is interesting because some plants that are so plants that are bitter tend to have a component in them that is mm. toxic to us in very large quantities mm. but you can still eat the plants it's fine you know but you obviously don't eat anything that you don't know what it is. Yeah. But um, but some plants that are bitter, and I was I was reading somewhere recently that that bitterness can cause some sort of re chemical reaction within your body that's incredibly beneficial. Mm. But I can't remember exactly what it is. So there's so mm. there's some quite interesting things that happen when you do have this variety of foods activating different things and the same goes for not eating with fasting you know there's a lot of things yes. coming out around fasting yeah, and the yeah, benefits yeah. of that too for helping yeah. clear the body and help dealing with cancers and um, tumors and all of these kind oh, of things right. yeah. in, in tackling that so there's kind of a and the re, where i was going with this was it all comes back again into the spaces and the people that you do these things with so as you were saying it's understanding what people like and enjoy from their gardens for me I've always loved having friends over, having a fire pit, cooking yeah. something very slowly, um, 
you know, a, a big joint of meat or something that's cooked very slowly, responsibly sourced, but really good quality um, that we can sort of all enjoy together. And to me, that's always been a way that I've kind of mm -hmm. like spent time with friends or caught up with friends over time. So being able to appreciate that sort of culture and bring those elements in, in I think is really important mm -hmm. to like help build your understanding of what you enjoy and what you're happy with tying that to sort of your garden as well and sort of tying all these different things together you know food garden friends all of those kind of things mm. um and being able to bring that together is obviously you know a major part of of, of the work we do yeah and it makes it so rewarding yeah exactly yeah and hopefully the clients invite you over for a barbecue and things as well when it's done so, <laughs> that'd be nice <laughs> yeah that's the main perk of, of doing these things um call my clients out there please please keep inviting me <laughs> um but yeah and i think um what was the other thing we were going to talk about quickly um moving on slightly we were going to talk a bit about sustainability so obviously your work with the sustainable landscapes foundation you've been doing a lot on we've obviously talked a lot about sustainability but you're looking kind of at the industry and what the industry can yeah. do to become more sustainable it's a bit more of a serious conversation <laughs> but well, it's, it's yeah i mean it's crazy it's crazy that we can be working in a green industry and not and doing any harm. Mm. I mean, that, that, that just struck me as madness. So when um, I met Eric Anderson five years ago, I think, um, we met at an awards ceremony. Oh, we met on Twitter first of all, but then we met at an awards ceremony. Um, and we were just saying how crazy it is that things were being judged on their size and the amount of money that was being spent and what it looked mm. like when actually it should be being judged on the good it was doing and um, the longevity really, the long-term plan. And from that, we then brought lots of people together and talked about, um, got really fabulous leaders of their own knowledge areas, like we were saying before, bringing in the experts to just say, well, how could we gather together our information in a really cross-body way? Because we have, we're really fortunate, you and I, both members of the Landscape Institute, also of the, I'm a member of the Society of Garden Designers, member of Bali, there's the APL, the Horticulturist Trade Association, um, lots of other people besides, all doing good, but they have lots of different things that they're doing, they need to, to be working at, whereas we were only looking at sustainability so if we could bring together all those people with just that core um, focus then we could just gather together so much information and help people provide a platform so that people are thinking well if um, and that's the other thing which is i do touch on in the book is well, what are the properties of different materials brick mm. versus concrete versus limestone versus sandstone just to use paving for example um and before you even get into wood and so on different types of woods what are the uh, characteristics of those that make them more or less sustainable? Not uh, not just how expensive, but where they come from, the fossil fuels which are used in terms of making them, but transporting them, how long they're going to last, how can they be recycled or have they been recycled beforehand? All those sorts of things. So we want to create a platform whereby people can go for that information, whether they are a sole practitioner, garden designer, a person, you know, I, I hate to use the word public because we're all public at some stage, um, or one of the really big um, companies, the Arabs of the world, who we've we've worked with closely to to develop part of what we're doing. Um, 
then how do you, um, once you know what good looks like, how do you tell if you are doing good? How do you measure it? How do you mm. measure how much good you're doing? And now we have biodiversity net gain measurements. We've got some of the carbon capture. capture. So actually in the time that we've been building up this foundation, a lot of people, a lot of clever people are thinking fast as well because we all need to think fast. And Arit and I always joke, if somebody else comes up with the idea and wants to do it instead, then that's great. You know, we'll mm. give them everything we've done so far. Let's not double do. Yeah, Let's absolutely. all work together to, to go the same way. Um, but is there an accreditation system that we can develop that will tell people if mm. they're doing really well in these areas? And then how could we link that to awards? Uh, but also, how can we look at the policy? So I have said right from the outset how brilliant it would be if your garden could be rated mm. like your fridge and you could get a reduction on your council tax, for example. Mm. If you're doing good in your garden, then that should be recognised. So mm. if, if you're sinking carbon or providing biodiversity net gain or something, even in your tiniest square patch in the middle of a city, how good would it be if we could um, have that? recognized hmm. so i think all of those sorts of things are, are what we're trying to work towards in the sustainable landscape foundation and, and what i'm writing about and what, what, what we're all really working towards hmm. no it's very exciting and i think you're right in the terms that a lot of things are starting to come out yeah. and, and be implemented and it's amazing how many more are sort of coming up and being discussed now because we've we've got nutrient neutrality and water neutrality and uh, we've, people have been talking about energy neutrality and uh Today, actually, and a few a couple of times now, we're talking about agricultural offsetting. What's the impact yes. on food production of big rewilding projects or whatever else? Is it actually reducing the amount of food we're producing? Well, that's making us less food secure as a country. How can that be offset? How can that be mitigated? So it's opening up a lot of doors as well because because again you know again it's a lot of its trade-offs. You start looking at these things, going, oh, it's kind of a rabbit hole in a way. Um, and everything has a knock-on impact, so it's identifying those impacts and how you implement solutions. I think one thing I'd be really interested um, to see from it is um, work on what you could do as a practice in terms of, I don't know if you've looked at this at all, but like within a practice, what could you do to make your own sort of practice policy better and what sort of learning there is from other practices that have, have tried to do something like that. I think there'd be that could be very interesting because my experience, which we kind of, you kind of touched on earlier is there's a lot of organizations out there all doing great things but because they're doing great things they're kind of missing what they're doing themselves mm. and their own impact that goes for individuals or organizations they often don't look at it because they're doing something environmental somebody else. Yes. Um, yeah. because it's kind of going well actually we're designing all of these great spaces and restoring nature and I've always kind of been like, great, yeah, we should carry on doing that, obviously. But actually, as an organisation, there's still a lot we could do yeah. ourselves in-house. So um, that's something I've been quite interested to sort of understand what yes. practices and things can do on that front too. I mean, the short answer as designers is that most of our impact is in the influence we have outside the studio. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we, did, we did a carbon footprint for my studio, which is small, and the the biggest um, our biggest carbon expenditure is on travel. Yeah. So that I mean that's what, you know, fairly fairly obvious. We use the sustainable print company. We we print very little, but when we do print something, then they will print a bound copy of something for a client, and it's all done with um, through their you know very careful means. Um, but yes, travel is the big one. So in lockdown, we were quids in. Mm. <laughs> but now we do a lot of, we actually, we did a lot of remote working anyway, but mm. we still do remote working. Um, 
that helps with people's quality of life as well, as long as they use that, that free hour of travel to do something good rather than, mm -hmm. um, you know, working as well. That's it. And it is, it is very difficult because, as you say, it's the impact. Of, for our, we're lucky because the impact of what we do is the big impact in terms of our actions yeah. um helping clients and understanding these things and i mean it's I, the I, influence we can have influence, outside sorry, yeah, 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 yeah yeah absolutely um and i was having this discussion of the day because lately i've had to fly quite a lot and i've mm. got to fly quite a lot more coming up and we were sort of going well it's not really very sustainable is it as environmentalists flying around everywhere and we sort of just sat there and went one project we'd looked at with some water we could save 16 billion liters of water for one small part of a city and you're sort of going yeah well actually that is pretty valuable that yeah. we we go and deal with these things so it's also about understanding that there is that the influence role is incredibly important yeah. and if you're not there the influence isn't as great or as valuable as perhaps it should be so it's kind of factoring all those things in but then yeah how do you mitigate that as well as best you can if yes. you can yeah um, and, and I how do you do that where it. do you look where do you go and what do you do yeah and we see it now we were talking about this slightly briefly earlier talking about sort of water neutrality and biodiversity and all of these things and I know that some companies now are starting to look at their own footprint in that sense it's not just carbon yeah. it's the impact of our sort of lifestyle on biodiversity so that's the impact of the area of food area of land that is required to produce our food the area mm -hmm. of land that we sort of live on um, the amount of water we use can that be offset somewhere else this this kind of thing so there's a lot of people starting to sort of look at those things too going beyond just carbon and starting to look at you know water availability and sustainability and um, and biodiversity as well and helping sort of fund that transition so yes. it all goes back in sort of ESG sort of Territory. Yeah, it does. And actually, I mean, maybe just to finish, then we, how can we have influence as individuals? We can have influence as individuals in our gardens, but really it's how we spend our money. So you mm. going to take the food at the end of the day, you say it's because it's your cheap, actually. What a fantastic thing you're doing to use it up so it doesn't go to landfill. Yeah, indeed, that's, that's, that's true. That's a big yeah. deal. Mm. It's also quite fun to be creative with. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm the same. It's like, what, what on earth am I going to do with what's in the fridge? Well, let's think something mm. up. Um, and I love the river food um, approach, you mm. know, because they send you vegetables and you get the vegetables and then you're thinking, what am I going to do with these? Well, they do also give you recipes. But um, I think uh, uh, in terms of our spending, every decision we make about a piece of clothing or a cup or, you mm. know, even this book, if you can buy it online or whatever, or get it from the library, then... Um, that those are all things which we can influence, aren't they? Yeah. And and who we invest with and all that kind of stuff. And and if we do invest, then I've never been one for going at um to annual general meetings, but maybe that's something we need to start doing. Mm. Go and start sort of I don't think I'd be very good at table thumping, but maybe voting or making our voices known a bit. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good that's a very, very good point and I think a really good point to to end on as well. Mm. So um Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having yeah. us in your beautiful garden. Thank you for coming. And you're very welcome. I'd love to come back, actually. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Um, and, um, yeah, well, we'll put a link out for the book and everything as oh, well. And um, everybody keep an eye out for the Sustainable Landscapes Foundation, Foundation when that yeah. comes out. Thank you. Brilliant. Cheers. Lovely Thank to you. see you. Thank you. Likewise. Sorry to interrupt, but we have a quick message from one of our sponsors. And it's that we're thrilled to announce that Marshalls is the sponsor of this episode. As the UK's leading supplier of sustainable concrete and natural stone products for the built environment, Marshalls is committed to doing the right things for the right reasons, delivered in the right way, ethically and sustainably. 
From fairly traded stone to low-carbon concrete bricks, Marshalls believes we can create better spaces, putting people, communities and the environment first. Find out more about the firm's green initiatives in our podcast links below. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about how you can build complexity into gardens to benefit nature, but also create interest for people too, then check out our episode with John Little where we talk about just that. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share to friends and colleagues who might be interested too. And a huge thank you to our incredible sponsors, Marshalls, Water Offsets and Vectorworks. Our kind supporters, Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens. And of course, NDLA and Monsterdon for powering this episode. As well as a big thank you to Marion for her time and allowing us to film in her fantastic garden. Many thanks. <laughs>